Well, a lot of stuff needs editorial curation. I mean, that's sort of what I'm learning on Reddit, too. Like, I've, I've been spending a lot of time on the Battlefield 3 Reddit, and I, I sent you an email about that. But the other thing I've noticed is that there's, is there is good information. Yeah. But a lot of it really, even though there's voting and stuff, it still gets buried because stuff falls off the front page really rapidly. They could be really good. And, like, there could be 15 comments, and there's this really good chunk of information. And comment 12, which is a reply to comment 3... Yeah, I don't know. A lot of uh, and the solution it's for a lot of stuff internet. is just well, I know, but you need almost editorial. You need someone curating the stuff. Like I don't know Curation. if there's a magical. I mean, we've tried to do it with our system, but man, it's a hard problem. Like I think a lot of systems suffer from just burying information. We have. Let me before now that we're actually saying useful things and that this might actually go out in the podcast. Um, we should introduce our guest, who's Mark R- R- Rusinovich. Let me pronounce that correctly. Hey, Mark. Hey, how's it going? And uh, uh, Mark is known from, uh, like, I guess, sysinternals.com, right? Is that a good way to put it? Which used to be NT Internals when I first found it. And it had, yeah, like, yeah, like all these bizarre command line utilities that would let you do things like kill a process running on a different Windows computer. I use that one all the time. <laughs> no better way to screw with someone. <laughs> and I swear to God, I read every line of the official Windows API documentation and could not figure out how that worked exactly or or how, how one would do that how would one would even write such a program yeah and actually there's no uh particular api for that before wmi anyway wmi introduced an api but uh it used uh, a technique where i actually injected uh executable onto the other system and have right. it proxy to kill so so you would basically use the file sharing to put a yep a little exactly. exe on there and yep. then you would service cause it control to, manager and and how would you run? Oh, you you would put a service on there, launch a service. Isn't that weird that like Windows had in the early days? It had all these utilities for services and demons and stuff like that, but it didn't have basic utilities for like remote run a process on another machine. Like the more basic, they had the complicated features, but not the simple features. Yeah, yeah. Well, that gave me a, a nice opportunity to go fill some holes. <laughs> um, well, how did you how did you find that stuff? How did you figure it out? What um, just reverse engineering and, and uh, you know, just looking at the problem. How do I kill a process on another machine? What yeah. tools are available? What APIs are available? And put, it, put them together in the right way to make it happen. So were you actually, I mean, how did you even know what, I mean, the APIs were not documented. So are you like calling dump, well, running dump in and looking at, at what things well, are the, being imported? Those, the, the APIs, that command, PS kill, which is still a sysinternals tool it uses, are all documented. Yeah. Oh, there okay. Was, so it's an example of one of the tools that used all documented APIs. But for the undocumented ones, uh, you know, there's lots of tools that use undocumented APIs. Process Explorer being one of the most well-known. And that one, uh, the, the way that I'd figure out the way a system worked internally was to use, uh, back then, soft, uh, a kernel debugger called Softice from New Mega Technologies, which I worked at briefly, uh-huh. and uh, disassemblers. Uh, custom disassemblers that I'd written, and then later on, I'd have Pro. Sure. Wow. So you would basically disassemble Windows DLLs and look in there and see what the heck they were doing. And Softice was sort of a kernel debugger, but that's because it was actually, that thing originated as a hardware debugger, right? Like it lets you debug even when the CPU well, it was called, didn't want you to. Actually, that, that one was purely was uh, software, ice. which is kind of the play on the words. ICE is in circuit. I mean, oh, uh, right, right. Yeah. In circuit, whatever. Uh, I can't remember what the E stands for. But it was, uh, ICE was a hardware debugging system for debugging microcircuits, but soft ICE was a play on it. And we needed, basically, 
I, I, I just remember, like, in the 8086 era, you didn't have the idea of... I mean, you, you basically only had one one ring of execution. You couldn't really get in below the operating system and debug. Um, well, you didn't have the virtual virtualization layer that you get now, but you did have the the processor supported four rings. All OSs generally only use two of them: mm. ring zero and ring three. Since so Softice. And all the kernel stuff would run at ring zero. So mm-hmm. Softice was in a, was basically a, it was just a device driver. Mm-hmm. It would just take full control and take control away from the OS when it was active. So Mark, uh, piggybacking on that a little bit, uh, you've become quite famous for a number of things. One is for being sort of a hardcore Microsoft hacker. Yes, they do exist, and Mark is actually <laughs> an example of one. Uh, but the rootkit stuff, where you know, you were one of the first people to talk about the, the Sony rootkit oh, yeah. in the, the Sony CD, the music CD, and the general problem of rootkits, which now is epidemic. Like, I think the, the malware stuff has gotten, some of it has gotten so good that it's my understanding that the secure boot stuff that Microsoft is doing in Windows 8 is kind uh-huh. of a reaction to some of the rootkits getting so good that they're almost unremovable without, like, a format re- like blowing the drive away from orbit. <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, I mean, the the uh, we are seeing this trend towards very highly, highly sophisticated malware. There's still tons of what I call junk malware out there, which is right. not doesn't do uh, doesn't make a big effort to hide itself or infect deeply uh, into the system just because the goals that whoever's creating this kind of malware wants to accomplish are they can accomplish them with the junk malware. Just you don't have to be that sophisticated to do most of the things that these guys want to do but for the cutting edge stuff where it's cyber espionage and cyber weapons like Stuxnet that's where you're seeing Eeks. the boundaries get pushed yeah. in the, and actually even some of the more advanced botnet stuff you're seeing as well some of that that was a good um, one I remember that Sony one because they were putting they were basically putting rootkits on was it a game or was it just like a music CD I don't know. was there it's a music, music CD, CD yeah. yeah to prevent Spe- you from copying the music CD yeah. yeah, and what was funny is I, I had a friend who was working at Sony at the time, and he told me they wouldn't buy anybody Photoshop, so they were all using pirated copies of Photoshop at Sony because <laughs> the company was too cheap to buy any software. Like the whole, the whole company was operating on pirated software. <laughs> well, look, remember, only their <laughs> stuff is intellectual property worth right. protecting. Exactly. Everything, everyone else's stuff, that should just be free. I swear to God, that was like that's the best argument for the corporate death penalty if there were such a thing where you'd just be like, that's it, your corporation is not allowed to continue to exist. Goodbye. That's well, so pretty beat up this year. So, Mark, uh, have you been involved at all in in Windows Eight as far as uh, you know the, the te- we should, technical? Be, before before you answer that, we should just say to our listeners who are confused is that Mark started outside of Microsoft, working on sort of figuring the stuff out from the outside, and probably you knew more about the NT internals than the average Windows programmer. Um, um, but later, your company was acquired by Microsoft, and so now you work for Microsoft, right? Right. And I worked on Windows when I joined Microsoft in 2006. I worked on the tail end of Vista and then Windows 7, beginning of Windows 8, the planning part of Windows 8. And then I left Windows uh, a year and a half ago and joined the new operating system, the cloud operating system, Windows Azure. And when you got there, you probably immediately said, I got to read this source code. Let's see what the hell is going on here. (laughs) Did you have like a list of things you just positively had to read right away? Uh, At Microsoft? Well, actually, not really. I mean, I'd... um, I pretty much, uh, you, you know, found it. what I wanted to know through other methods. So it, it wasn't 
like this big uh, here you know here's the source code wow i'm going crazy with it yeah it just made things easier when i wanted to find out information at that point it became a lot easier right right well usually it's a much lower higher level thing but we use the mvc framework and because it is open source when usually we dip in when we're having specific problems we're like what the hell is this code doing like why is yeah (laughs) like usually at the point we have to read the code it's bad like it's like wow we don't really have this problem and we need to figure out where it's coming from so it's not like the first thing we reach for is to go read you know mvc source code so mark getting back to the question uh have you been involved heavily in in windows 8 it looks like there's a lot of really interesting changes in windows 8 finally um no well like i mentioned i was in windows during the windows 8 planning process but i've left windows about a year and a half ago so you're you're on a zero so yeah on windows azure so i i haven't really done much i mean i've i've got friends over in windows still and i keep tabs of what's going on there but i haven't been working on that i've been working on windows azure stuff and what what types of things are you doing just scalability or i mean cause when I think no cloud, actually I think the, so the like a we call windows azure a cloud operating system it's an operating system for data centers and it's got an application model it's just like a desktop operating system has a model for how you describe an application to it. We've got an application as well, and the part of the Windows Azure group that I work on is called the Fabric Controller team. Fabric Controller is like the kernel in the cloud operating system, and just like the kernel in Windows, it manages the hardware in the data center, so the Fabric Controller is what's responsible for turning servers on and deploying hypervisors to them and starting virtual machines on them. And just like the kernel, it also defines what an app is or a process is. So the fabric controller is what implements the compute network application model. So people write a, write a Windows Azure application, that application is described in uh, XML and the fabric controller consumes that XML and takes the code and the configuration and then launches the app and then monitors its health. So I'm doing things all up and down the stack like uh, working on low-level things, just uh, like how do we get better performance out of our servers, booting virtual machines, and and uh, running workloads like SQL Azure, which need more direct access to disks in our cloud environment, to figuring out how to incorporate other resource types into the application model. So today it's just compute and network, but we'll be integrating storage and Azure and messaging and other aspects uh, of their cloud resources and middleware into the application model. I see. So there's truly this concept of a higher level multi-server application? Because I know yeah. the, the main app we work on is uh, obviously the, the website Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange. And uh, uh-huh. it's not abstracted to that degree, at least not the way we set it up. Uh, we have to code in the ability to write to sort of shared memory, if you will. Uh, we use Redis, which is a uh, basically a shared memory server, uh, and we talked to that over the network. So uh, presumably those kinds of, kinds of things are built into Azure? A lot of them are. We're still fleshing out the middleware services, but if you wanted to write a scalable website, you could do it in MVC. You could have your... You could use SQL Azure as a structured as structured storage, or you could Windows, use Windows Azure tables as no kind of unstructured storage, uh, lightly structured storage. You could use queues to for intermachine communication, and the when you create these this website, it's it follows a stateless model, so you can scale that out as much as you want, depending on 
what your load looks like and it's load balanced by our load balancers automatically. The health is monitored automatically. If a machine fails underneath you, we'll reincarnate that particular virtual machine on a different server automatically. So there's a, a bunch of things that you will also patch the operating system underneath for you. So there's right, a bunch so you stop of having um, to worry about you stop after having to worry about buying machines. You stop have to worry about like dealing with uh, configuration of the network. Pretty much, you stop thinking about everything except for just upload your app and it just works. Is that the theory exactly. anyway? Yeah, yeah, that's the theory. Yeah, I think uh, one of the one of the things that people are programmers are often afraid of is that there's a level of abstraction that they don't control and can't monitor beneath them when they're on Azure or any of these other cloud computing things that run on VMs. So uh -huh. they may find suddenly that performance gets really slow for a few seconds because who knows, their VM is getting migrated or I, you know, they don't, they don't even know what it's doing <laughs> or the machine yeah. that it's on is heavily loaded or another VM on the same machine is doing something weird and... Um, well, we're taking um, efforts, and this is brand new area. So there's a lot of mm -hmm. of, of uh, new developments we've got to do, to, and questions we got to answer. Uh, one of them is basically is trying to get performance to be as consistent as possible, mm -hmm. which is something that we've consciously recognized now that customers don't like variable performance. They don't like even if the peak is really great. Yeah. If their troughs are there it blows the whole experience. So we need to be consistent. We need to be good and need to be consistent uh, so that people aren't in this what the hell's going on or underneath me kind of situation. Or they're sort of misattributing things that they think, oh, dear, dear have I done something wrong? And actually, right, exactly. uh, they haven't. Yeah. They're just, just, that's just the nature of the... And, and, and I hear these complaints about AWS and, um, and Google uh, App Engine all the time, which is like we don't even yeah. understand why this all of a sudden got slow. Yeah. So you, I mean, we've we've got places in our system where you can you can uh, see the noisy neighbor syndrome, and we're getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. So the, I think in the next six months to a year, uh, our our consistency story will improve dramatically, and and hopefully be the best in the industry. Cool. The the one piece of advice we had, and we worked a tiny bit with Zero, and this was like a year ago. So this is real early. <laughs> In the life, because well, I think Scott Hanselman had contacted us, and we were yeah. doing some stuff with OData, and we'd hosted some stuff there. And I, I recall the main beef we had was just it took so long between deployment oh, to deploy. And, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that that really made us crazy. It wasn't so much the variable performance that didn't bother us. In fact, I think the performance was good. We had to build a fairly beefy server to even get what we we're getting out of Azure. Um, yeah, we, we've when we talk to customers, uh, I'll hear. We love Azure, you know, people that are deployed on Azure. We love Azure. It's awesome. But deployment time. And so that's an area that we're focused, we've got a big focus on right now. And it's, we've made some improvements over the last few months. Um, one of the things that we want, we're going to get to, um, and this is, uh, um, I think, a very realistic goal, is in sometime before the middle of next year to have deployment of a brand new virtual machine, Windows virtual machine, take five minutes or less and an update of an existing virtual machine where you're updating the code in it to take two minutes or less. Today, those well, times are around not eight, or eight or nine minutes for the 50th percentile uh, for deployment and six minutes for an update for the 50th percentile. So this... You mean between the time that you say, I would like a new virtual yeah. machine, and when you actually get it is nine minutes? Uh, the, for the 50th percentile, so right at the average okay. is there. Um, there's I mean, a tail that goes out to 13, 14 minutes. 
Can't there just be a bunch of machines waiting around in case anybody needs one? You just pass. Yeah, them there's out. a there's a whole bunch of uh, optimizations. It's more tricky than you would imagine. <laughs> I imagine so. I, I'm rather naive here, but it seems like uh, <laughs> there would be a line. Try calling Lands yeah. End Business Outfitters sometime. You'll see that they answer the phone even before it starts ringing because. They know that they're going to get phone calls because that's what they do all day. They get phone yeah. calls. Well, and so there's a person yeah, cer- already holding the phone in their hand uh, waiting. Yep. I mean, certainly that is one uh, idea that we might implement, which is the pre-allocation of virtual machines. The, there's a, uh, a couple of issues with that. One of them is that um, that the um, that only hands, handles part of the deployment time because the we yeah. basically have the OS booted but we can't have the uh, your code started in it we so can't you have your it. code downloaded to it so it's it shaves off some time but at the same time it's mm-hmm. we've got to create virtual machines of the size that we expect and with the operating system release that we expect people yeah. to want so it might be an optimization that only applies if you're using the latest and greatest release of an OS and you're a certain size want a certain size VM but there's a lot more fundamental things that we're doing from doing things like pre-allocating files to prefetching on Windows boot to uh, doing uh, kind of shortcuts on sysprep to inject things right into the virtual machine image. To, so there's uh, you know a list of a dozen things that we're working on to improve the performance in different ways just of the Windows boot process. And then there's a whole bunch of things around the system from like your package gets uploaded to Windows Azure. And at that point, we start tearing it apart, optimizations on how we do that how we get that down to the servers and so on. So lots of moving right. parts to, to go and optimize. Sounds like a fun project. Yeah, it's, it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun, too, because this is all, like I said, it's new. So it's it's not like you can look, go look, read somebody else's book and see how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. When you're working on something that is only about three, I mean, that's, that was always one of the great things about working at Microsoft. You know, you could work on an operating system where there are pretty much only about three operating systems of the scale of Windows under development at any given time. Uh, you know, that have that 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 scale and that that level amount of deployment and the number of people using them. And yeah, and I think that you this is kind of the same opportunity as the way I view it. We're building a Windows, right. the Windows 3.0 or whatever you consider the big breakthrough version of Windows for the cloud. The cl- and Windows, there's not that many companies out there that can build cloud operating systems and really run them at the kind of at scale that proves them out. We're, you know, when a data center costs $150 million to build, mm-hmm. not a lot of companies can go and investing in things like that. Well, let me play devil's advocate a tiny bit. Um, one of the uh-huh. things about Stack Overflow is we and Stack Exchange, we've gotten to be a pretty big website. What are we, Joel, and Quantcast, like top 200 now or something? Um, yeah, 181. Not that I'm It doesn't really take that much hardware to run a, a pretty large web server. I mean, it serves yeah. a lot of people. And, and do, you know, again, a lot of our pages are dynamic. We do serve, you know, 90% anonymous users, in which case there's a lot of caching that goes on. But, you know, these are pretty active websites. I mean, I'm not saying we're building, uh, you know, CNN.com or anything. But mm-hmm. most people... It would be tough for them to get to this the size, right? Like, you're um, not going to get to the size trivially. It's going to take a while, and and for us, it, yeah. it, we were running on for a while. I think four servers. Anyway, it's it's and right now we have maybe running. ten. We're not even running in the world. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of it. Just doesn't I mean, take that many servers to run a giant, giant website. <laughs> no, but but you forget, Jeff, that getting from 181 to like 150 is like four times as many pages. Oh sure. I don't know if that's for true, sure. but. 
Somewhere in there, I, I, I heard that like Tumblr, for example, is just buying racks and racks and racks and racks and racks yeah, of servers. Yeah, Facebook's running massive data. I mean, when yeah. you get to that kind of scale. But, that the, scale but that's not just the that's not the total focus of what we're doing either. Is is not just huge properties. You know, the internet kind of breakthrough. Twitters, new Twitters of the world. But even guys like you, instead of buying your own servers, instead of managing the hardware, instead of managing your network, basically you can take your web app and within whatever today nine minutes and have it up and running scale it out if your load does go up um, I mean one of the things about the cloud is that versus what you're doing is um, when you do grow you've got to worry about let me go buy a new server let me go configure it let me right. uh, and and as you take on ownership of that and the networking configuration and the operating system configuration the the patching and maintenance of that all that software this is stuff that you don't have to worry about like you said just take the app and deploy it and pay and you're paying for what you use rather than the, these fixed costs that you've incurred that's in especially important if you too. have if you have for some reason you have bursty traffic or you don't you can't yeah. predict in advance or you're going to need a lot of extra servers for the christmas rush or whatever it may be yeah uh, i which, mean there's the yeah, yeah that's a great example of yeah. kind of cloud workloads the bursty workloads the periodic workloads the workloads that you know uh, we've got a bunch of different examples of of workload patterns that do better uh, that are really yeah do do yeah. a lot better when you can just pay for what you need when you need it yeah we're it's weird with Stack Overflow it's so remarkably predictable I think yeah. we can just sort of look at the I mean the CPU load at a given time of day is pretty steady from day to day and it goes up every day but you could sort of extrapolate from that pretty easily and figure out what hardware we're going to need yeah. No, I think that's all completely valid and, and makes sense. I was just pointing out there's a little bit of a, a weird disconnect between, you know, as computers get ridiculously powerful, and we've, we're way beyond ridiculous now. It's absurdly powerful. Yeah. You can run, I mean, enormous websites off just one trivial little server, right? Because one little server, that's the disconnect. Like, you can build these massive server farms that are incredibly powerful, but you can also build a single machine that's also kind of crazy powerful. Yeah. Right. I mean, the so thing that, it, the that's, thing all, that's that, all I was pointing uh, out. Some of the other, yeah, I mean, that's all valid. And and it might, there's certain cases where it might make sense for you to manage your own servers and buy your own servers. But you do get a bunch of other benefits. I mean, we haven't even touched on. Like, for example, um, disaster recovery. So your storage, if you're using Windows Azure storage, we're replicating that across the country hmm. so that if uh, we do have a data center fail, even something that catastrophic, you're backed up. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, with just the application model we've got, if a server fails, and we see three to five percent of our servers fail every year, the mostly the biggest reason disk failures. Yep. Uh, you're not impacted by it for very long. Well, I've definitely seen yeah. that. Well, first of all, I'm a world authority on backups, as Joel will attest to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, we, we had a we had some data loss, but it was actually a case where uh, I kind of assumed. Like basically what you're describing, I assume the server had some sort of RAID or some basic level of drive fail protection, and the server we had been given by the uh, provider, who shall remain nameless for the purpose of this call, had no, no RAID, no nothing. It was just like a drive on a server. Yeah. <laughs> so when the yeah. drive decided it didn't want to work anymore, it was like, well, hope you had backups, right? Like we couldn't rely on them for what you're describing. They were they so were doing backups. I certainly see the value of that. But you were running in a VM, and your VM. Had its oh, image that's true. File, that's right. Yeah, they, uh, their backup the thing was really. They didn't pay basic. the extra five bucks for the open file backup <laughs> feature. 
that's probably an NT internals thing too, right? (laughs) There's that that new API that they added to Windows with the volume shadowing or whatever it was called that lets you, yeah, which actually lets you um, take a gigantic file that stays open all the time, like an Outlook BSD or a database file, and actually back it up, um, you know, to a snapshot in time, um, so that it would be consistent. uh, I don't know if you've seen my disk to VHD tool, but it uh, system internals tool that you can run on a you know on a physical machine and it spits out a virtual image of it cool yeah yeah that's awesome so let's talk a little bit about your book so one of the things i, I like about you mark is that you write about very 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 technical stuff on the windows side and yet it's it's really readable like i i feel like a person who didn't even know anything about windows or even what you were talking about could like read it and sort of you were telling a story you know, of, of mm-hmm. like, here's how I found this rootkit. The rootkit is an example. You were telling a story. It's like, well, I, I got the CD. I thought it. I noticed the strange thing about it. And then you sort of walked people through it. And, and you're, you're a very good writer, which is what makes you a good technical communicator. It's why you're a technical fellow at Microsoft, all that good stuff. But it was just interesting that you decided to go all the way to writing a novel, which is sort of the ultimate <laughs> uh, end point there where you're actually talking to people who, you know, are not hardcore, you know, computer geeks or anything. And that novel is, uh, did you want to talk a little bit about your novel? And Zero Day. Day. Sure. sure, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you're referring to Zero Day, a novel that came out in March of this year, and it's a, what I call a cyber thriller. It's about cyber terrorism and plot to bring down or, or large chunks of the world we're using malware. And uh, like, you, like you said, I tried to make it accessible to lay people, but yet be true to the science and make it so that somebody like me reading it would find it realistic and find uh, enough technical detail there to be credible. Or at least non-irritating. <laughs> yeah, like at least <laughs> I'm required by law to mention the computer enhanced video that's on YouTube, the, the magical image enhancement that always happens in Hollywood and TV shows where yeah. you take some, you know, GIF right. that's like six by six yeah. pixels, and you just enhance it. And all of a sudden, wow, you can see the reflection of his face in his glasses <laughs> yeah. of a person standing across the street. So that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. do image enhancement on it, yeah. Yeah, just image enhance it and, you know, get infinite yeah. detail. It's like fractal. It's like my crazy yeah. fractal. In fact, I just uh, was checking on TechMeme, and there was a, a news article about uh, a, a an attack against chemical compounds and various advanced materials in the military, like some sort of targeted... Uh, attack, but the interesting thing about this mark is these are all phishing attacks. They're not really. The impression I get, and I actually read another book on this, and I need to look at the title. But the, the this guy was talking about how pretty much all attacks these days are all phishing. It's basically trying to get somebody on the inside on the facility to click uh-huh. on a link, and usually it's problems in the web browser, like usually old copies of Internet Explorer or what have you. It's not really about direct attacks so much anymore. It's about the social engineering stuff. Yeah. I mean, is that your impression as well? or? Um, I think that certainly um, uh, lo- uh, there's a low barrier to entry. That's a very highly effective way of getting in, but I don't think it's limited to just that. I mean, if you look at some of the attacks that we've seen um, recently in the news in the last six months, uh, a bunch of those have been um, taking advantage of vulnerabilities in websites or cracking passwords. And um, so I think it's a combination of all these things, which the thing is you cannot have a weakness anywhere because somebody's going to find it. Yeah. Um, but fish, spear phishing is what the kind of attack that you're talking about. I think, um, and the, so I've written a, a sequel to Zero Day. It's called Trojan Horse. The editor is currently reading the draft right now. So I'm waiting for their feedback before I, uh, for my next edit pass. It's going to be published early next fall. And 
it's focused on state-sponsored cyber espionage, which almost exclusively is based on spear phishing. And the spear phishing can be really, really sophisticated. And it, the, the basic scenario around spear phishing is you, you work, work at some agency that somebody wants to penetrate, and the, you might not even be the person that they want to get to, but you work near them or on, in the same network, and you get an email from somebody that looks like you knew or somebody that you potentially could have met. Kind of um, a generic and name, it'll yeah. Be, yeah. A classic example, and you can go find real cases of this posted where the actual emails and documents that associated with the stuff have been posted where it'll say, it was great meeting you at that conference last week. Here's a document on the subject that we discussed. And it's an infected PDF file or Word file that you open it up and you're owned. And that's taking advantage of two things, right? One is the vulnerability in the, the document viewer, and the other one is the spearfish at the, the same so, time. And the social engineering of having it look like it right. comes from. Yeah. And those things that, I, I mean, I've seen, you know, viruses that have access to your address book will actually send you an email that did actually come from somebody that you actually know. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah and that's another, that, I mean, that's the way that you could also do this, too. It's like once you infect somebody at that company, then you send email from their email account. Right. To somebody else and infect them. Hey, Mark, should we put uh, virus uh, detection software on our servers? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> You're not, you don't have it on your servers. All right, Jeff, there you go. Decision has been taken. <laughs> <laughs> well, we well we have a lot of performance problems, and we're worried that you know the overhead's going to be kind of extreme. We're kind of trying to isolate to servers where there's actually a server where they upload, like for careers, you actually upload Word documents <laughs> containing your you know your CV or your resume. Uh, trying to really limit it to there because you know on Linux, if you say I want to install antivirus, you sort of get laughed out of the room. Um, <laughs> So we're trying to limit it to where people actually upload stuff to the servers because performance is so critical for yeah. us. Um, I mean, security is all about risk management. And the, the one, I think one of the problems is that it's really hard to measure the risk anymore. You never know if you, know, you, know, right. you guys are going to end up on the front page of TechMeme for having been your website being taken over or whether antivirus is really going to help you stop that. Right. I guess it, so, it, it sort of depends a little bit on the value of the thing that is being protected, so to speak. So yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's my true. It depends on <laughs> the, the service. It's kind of worthless. And exactly, is it my bank account or is it you know your stack exchange account? I mean, right. it wouldn't really be. I that mean, big I think deal. everybody you should you should be going through the exercise. What if our server got infected? What how what how do we respond to that? And what are the implications of it? Absolutely, that makes sense. We close down. That's it. I give up. <laughs> no, no Stack Overflow. Hopefully, y'all have the common Creative Commons data dump. Somebody else can set it up, and we give up. Yeah, well, so much of what we do is public. Like, part of the, the reason we started the company, Mark, is that um, transparency, basically. Like, even the stuff we do internally, like with the discussion we're having about antivirus on the server, you'll get different answers about it. But just having the conversation in public, publicizing the results, and thinking about the process behind that, like, should it be a knee-jerk? Like, see, I hate knee-jerk stuff. That really rubs me really raw. Like, oh, you must yeah. do X. That immediately makes me not want to do X. <laughs> like, I want to think about, like, why would you do X? Like, what are the actual reasons you would do X? So, like you said, think about the consequences. Like, what, you know, what's the cost? You know, measuring the cost, measuring the effect. Just walking yeah. through some of the models and seeing what the consequences actually are for that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and, the, the, the thing is, too, with with uh, antivirus, it's it shuts down a certain vector, but the spear phishing attacks we've been talking about, antivirus isn't good any good for because these things are custom malware doesn't show up on uh, in antivirus signatures. Yeah, it's just that's right. In fact, circulating for a year. Nobody. Yeah, looking at a screenshot, which is one of the emails that was sent to these chemical facilities in the U.S., Bangladesh, and the U.K., and it's all—it's like a fake um, Adobe Acrobat update where they're trying to get you to mm-hmm. upload, execute an, an attachment to the email, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're really subject to the security model of the machine that's running the executable at that point, and it's live on the network as that user, right? <laughs> yeah. If they actually execute it. Okay, yeah, now but- I'm totally scared. <laughs> well, yeah, some of it is definitely scary. I mean, I, I think really the scariest is that you you know you're you're always as vulnerable as your weakest employee, right? You know what I mean? Like your least technically on, comp- on, on the night that they log on drunk. Well, your weakest employee, your weak or your weakest configuration, or your weakest software. That's uh, really all yeah. of it. Right, right, right. Depending also yeah. on how much somebody's targeting you versus just sort of randomly yeah. spraying around the world. You know, well, that's right. Like, who cares? Like, I mean. I don't know. For for Stack Exchange, going back to how much of our stuff is public, like almost everything on your user profile, like if you have a Stack Overflow, Stack Exchange user profile, a lot of that information is public. We don't publicize like your real name, your email, but it's not like these are yeah. state secrets, you know. And the purpose of participating on the network, now not on, on the career side, it's a little different because you're giving us, uh, we don't store credit card information. That's another big plus in the, you know, we keeping stuff secure is like we don't even store it there's no way to get to credit card information so you're actually buying a product from us on the career side but on the uh the the stack exchange side everything you do is supposed to be public that's the whole point like that's why you're there we don't have <laughs> messaging we don't everything should be in public to be a value that's one of my core values no, but somebody like, might say hey we got a lot of clever programmers on stack overflow i'm gonna put a download onto stack overflow and tell everybody to download it and run it well, yeah. Yeah. Are you I mean, we, we, are you running the live stream off of your own servers? Uh, no, that's just a okay. machine that sits here in the office and talks directly to the live stream server. Okay, so the login is theirs, not yours. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. Do we have a <laughs> Alex? <laughs> do we have a vulnerability you're about to tell us about? <laughs> um, it it looks like it's probably their login. Wait, wait, when you say login, you mean? Well, there's a, it, on the uh, live stream page. Oh, there's a login there's button. There's a login button yes, at the that's top. that's theirs. Correct. Yeah. And that wouldn't do anything for you, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the thing is with those, this is how people crack other, crack, pass, password, crack passwords on other accounts. Yep. Right? Is um, I get, I harvest these passwords. I sell them. Somebody yeah. else goes and looks at them, finds some juicy name that right. they they correlate to you, and you and happen to be using the same password on your Twitter account and your Facebook account and your bank account. Yep. And yep. yep. That is sort of an issue. There's there's a lot yeah. of stuff that is is spreading way more slowly than I think it should. I'm I'm very happy about um, Gmail now having two factor authentication. So yeah. um, you, you basically, without my iPhone, you can't log on as me from any other. Machine that's not my everybody listening computer. to this that, that that is so important, Joel. I want everybody listening to this to turn yeah. on two factor off because you have Gmail. no idea. Yeah. Your your email is a skeleton key, literally, for right. like everything you do. Go to any website in the world and say, Oh, I forgot my password. 
Yeah, exactly. Forgot my password. All they have to do is guess that you use a particular website, do a password recovery, and then they, as if they control your email, you're you're owned. You're beyond owned. Yeah. And there's yeah. this horror story in the Atlantic. I'll dig up the link for you, Alex, for the show James, notes. But James Fallows wrote that. Uh, yeah. About basically, once your email gets compromised, you're just you're super screwed. Like, he's, t- go turn on two-factor auth right now. And I'll be honest with you, it's a pain in the ass. Like, it really is a pain in the ass because I use like five or I probably use 10 different computers, to be honest with you, on a re- ongoing rotating basis. And, like, every time I touch one, I have to then get the, the text code for it. Yeah. So it's a pain. But the the cost of somebody controlling my email is they would just – they could take over my life, literally. Right. There's also so, – um, Turn it on. Right uh, yeah, definitely turn on the two, two-factor authentication. Totally worth it. The, um, the other thing is that I think the banks are starting to get a little bit better about – um, requiring higher levels of security confirmation if you're coming from a different machine. So my bank, for example, will not let me log on to another machine until it calls me and gives me a pass, uh, you know, a number to type in, and it'll call me at one of the three phone numbers that I've told it about. So this, what this, bank is that? What's that? What bank is that? Um, no, I can't tell you that. I'm, well, I'm using a major, uh, huge, major multinational <laughs> bank. And Are you social engineering, Joel? I think it's J.P. Morgan, JP Morgan Chase. Yeah. Uh, and they do. Now, it, it's interesting because that reminds me sort of of an old social engineering technique, which is you find out the outbound phone number that they're using. Who we have John Sheehan right there. You find out the outbound phone number that they're using to make that phone call to tell you what the number is. And you call that number right when you think they're about to call out. Yeah. This is like an old technique so from they, the days of modems. Yeah, so actually, um, it's Kevin Mitnick uses that technique in his right. book *Ghost in the Wires*. Speaking of hacking books, that's a great book. Right. They, you, so, so in other words, the uh, the uh, attacker calls the person who's getting attacked right at the time when the person who's getting attacked thinks they're calling somebody, and they think the phone call has gone through, but they've actually just picked up the phone. Yeah. And they're now talking to the wrong person, and they think that they have made a call when they've actually received the call. Whoa! Really? Get is it? that a thing? Yeah, that worked. Yeah. Yeah, people, wow. I, somebody hacked a Swiss bank with that wow. technique. Really? Wow. Yeah. Actually, like That's, I said, go read Ghost in the Wires. Kevin used that yeah. technique at one point. Fairly. Kevin Mitnick used in, that? In the day, really? probably yeah. with modems, right? Where you can control the timing and the modem doesn't really know what it's hearing, so it just dials happily. Yeah. Even when it's picked up the phone. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you can, sometimes you have to broadcast a fake dial tone. Right, so you call the guy up real quick. Broadcast, yeah. you transmit the sound that sounds like a dial tone. So he starts dialing, and then you pretend to be ringing, and then you pretend to be answering, and ta-da! Uh, I, I've kind of given up on requiring people to use smart passwords. Like I don't think that's I don't I just don't think that works for human beings. Like I don't think the average person is really going to do a good job of picking passwords. Oh, not for every site. You also don't need it for something like Stack Overflow. There's so few accounts where you need really hardcore security. It's your banks and your email basically. Uh, I don't know. Would you Mark, would you agree with that? Where would you pick really strong passwords? What about like the what? website that you used to order diapers from once a month? Diapers.com. <laughs> it's an important one. Uh, yeah. And plus, you yeah, never well, know actually, when it's like the the Gawker. Or wh- who, who are those people? I don't want to blame Gawker if it's not Gawker. But one of those blog sites that yeah, suddenly Yeah, Gawker gave got it. hacked and yeah. their entire password database got decoded. Yeah, and like half of those passwords probably work on, on Gmail. Yeah. And half yeah. of those passwords I, were password. <laughs> I would I would separate uh, my passwords into tiers. The passwords for my my what would you put in the highest efforts. tier? Like, what types of sites would you put in the highest tier? Like, worry well, a lot yeah, about Yeah, the ones that I do e-commerce at. And I actually, I, the ideal thing that I'd do is is do payments through something like PayPal 
or one-time credit card payments. Where, that's even a good point. Well, that's like the so the open ID thing that well open ID slash it's really okay. Uh, the credential system we're trying to promote, or at least I personally am trying to promote, <laughs> is this idea that you Don log Fiori. in using third-party credentials, period. It doesn't matter if it's OpenID. It doesn't matter if it's uh, OAuth 2.0, which is what Facebook uses. The point is you use some other form of credentials where the people running the credential are not morons, yeah. basically. Right. Right? Yep, like that, PayPal, that's the way I think kinda, that we need to go, too. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So that's basically what you're doing. When you say, hey, Jeff, you know, I like to use PayPal for this reason, that's the same reason, Joel, yeah. that we use this concept of third-party authentication because you can pick – now, you could pick you know, Joe's shack of logins, right? right? In which case, hey, or you made a bad choice. my open ID or something. <laughs> and to be, to be honest, like, it has hurt because some of the open ID providers, the lesser ones, have just stopped. They just gave up. Like, they just don't – they don't care, they don't anymore. care like they don't work or whatever so you can put your trust that's the downside of this approach mark you can put your trust in paypal which presumably is here presumably knows what they're doing presumably will be around or you could put your trust in you know joe's shack of online payments in which case you get boned right like they were storing your password clear text all your information is revealed um, yeah. but i i feel like I unless mean, we build systems like that we're just it's we're setting ourselves up for a huge failure later with this idea of yeah, everybody has 100 different passwords everybody has you know, uh, yeah. credit card information. I think that we, are, we are slowly, slowly converging towards that, because because of this explosion of web services, where everybody, everybody, to every web service you go to, log in with a new password. Although you see them now starting to standardize on on other credential yeah, providers Google, like Facebook, Facebook Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, that's uh, it, it's it's sort of funny because I I sort of think that one thing this does show is that there are not that many malevolent people in the world because there would be way more stories about uh, identity attacks and. I think this, this stuff would be way more common if there were just more malevolent people because it's just not so easy. Well, well the, I think security The percentages are actually pretty high. Pretty good, um, really. Yeah, actually, they, Facebook just came out and said that 600,000 Facebook accounts are actually compromised last week. They reported that. Wow. Jeez. I want to look up this. This uh, oh, so the book I read, Mark. I don't know if you've read this. Is Kingpin? Uh, yeah, how that. one hacker? I can't read the rest of the title because it's something in my Kindle app. But I really Kindle enjoyed Paulson. it. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good book. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it. Uh, also, uh, your book as well. <laughs> to put a book in front of your book, but that's the one I've actually uh, that I had read months and months ago way before this call and it was interesting because he really delineated two periods of time sort of the year 2000 period like the first boom security was apparently mm -hmm. really bad because he was walking all over systems like i think linux was very new uh windows was much more vulnerable and he kind of did time he got caught for some stuff and he came out and he said after he came out security was like a whole new world like everything really got better and that's why they started turning more to the phishing attacks because these direct attacks were just not working as well anymore. Security substantially got better, at least from this guy's uh, perspective. Yeah. And you know, he was a. The least thing some is, kind the, sec the security got better, but t you've seen a, a leap in sophistication of attacks as well, and spread of attacking knowledge in the last few years too. So True. I don't think it's like. We've we passed some threshold on the security side of things, and now it's just all phishing attacks. Um, you know, Stuxnet is a great example. Yeah. But wait, how does Stuxnet Stuxnet gets on well, through phishing? That's a super not? sophisticated attack, right? Well, Stuxnet. It's in. I mean, assuming they get one key infected. Yeah. Um, they, well, and they were also spreading through the network using 
printer uh, vulnerability in the printer, in the print spooler that was uh, <laughs> patched, but yet lots of people hadn't patched. I mean, this is it's the crazy. case where security has improved, but mo almost all the attacks recently have been through misconfiguration or unpatched software. Yeah. But these systems were, okay, I'm looking on Wikipedia for Stuxnet. It targets Siemens industrial software and equipment running Windows. Presumably, it's running a very old version of Windows. See, this is kind of what I'm getting at. I'm assuming... No, actually, it, it, it worked on Windows 7 as well. Really? Wow. Okay, yeah. so it's better than I thought. So it wasn't like just old industrial equipment running XP. That's always one what I assume when, yeah, when I get One of the zero stuff. days that it exploited is a Windows, uh, zero day on Windows Vista because they wanted oh. to make sure it could spread on newer operating systems as well. Wow. Interesting. Well, that's the other reason why, you know, and we, we had discussions about Vista, and, you know, Vista was a disappointing release on a lot of fronts, but it did get security a lot uh, more right than XP, but probably because it's, you know, eight years older. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and that's one reason why I really wanted people to upgrade was just to get a more secure basis for their operating system. And I'm really encouraged by this secure boot stuff I'm hearing about in Windows 8, although there's been some resistance to it because... There's some feeling that, oh, it's secure boot. You're trying to prevent us from loading Linux on our machines. <laughs> but the real motivation for that's, it is that's to prevent... That's just a benefit. That's just a side, side also, effect. It, as the, I recall, though, Stuxnet used a zero day to get inside, didn't it? That's what uh, it Actually, they used oh, yeah. four zero days. Yeah. To, several of them were used to elevate privilege on the local box. And uh, then it used this uh, ex patched vulnerability in the sprint and the principal to spread remotely. But it used another zero day to uh, infect machines through Explorer off the USB key. So, Ooh, it also used stolen keys. Wow. Jeez, this it, is hardcore. It's really sophisticated. So, Mark, it used four zero day attacks. Wow. Yeah. So, Mark, this is crazy. Who do you, who do you think wrote it? Um, I, th I think the predominant theory is that it's uh, US You'll and Iran. You'll say Abraham uh, and, yeah, I was yeah. just saying, I know that's kind of become the consensus. It's like it's way yeah. too sophisticated to it's not obviously be state-sponsored. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think that uh, the thing, I don't think the U.S. was fully responsible for it because I don't see no. the U.S. government not condoning the theft enough. of these certificates and using <laughs> signs. Really? That's, that's the reason? The yeah. CIA? Have you read any anything about what the CIA yeah. does? Look, we're fine with brutally murdering people and overthrowing their governments, but we will not steal digitally signed certificates. <laughs> Yeah, apparently, I the actually live feed that, is. That they draw the line on that one. Apparently, the live feed is uh, rough, but I don't know what we can do about that, Arthi, since we don't really control that. This is an example of a system that's not under our control, Mark. That's right. We can, yeah. We're very tired we're like, about well, things this not is happening control. through the cloud, so guess what? You're all screwed because we have no control over what's happening. <laughs> yeah. That is the downside of that. It's, it, and I think, too, well, going back to a little bit of the cloud stuff, it's nice to, to go to your, your customers, whether you have you know people that are paying you money or just hardcore users of your site, and say, this is our fault. We're going to fix this. Versus, oh, well, EC2 is doing the best they can, man. You know? Yeah. And talking about sort of your strategy of how you use EC2 and how you use Azure, or yeah. maybe you use both Azure and EC2, well, right? I've, so if I've Azure is down. Yeah. My philosophy no. has always been that you take whatever level you think is the right level of abstraction to buy. Uh, and then if it's for your, your one, in other words, the right level of abstraction for Stack Exchange using janitorial services is not to do it ourselves. So we just buy janitorial services and we buy catering services because we can't do the best. But then you take the one thing that is your mission critical, this is your business, this is the heart of your business, and you go one level too low in abstraction. 
right? Like you, you provide the abstraction yourself. So the perfect level for Stack Exchange might be to use Azure, but since that's at the heart of what we do is operate those websites, we go one level lower and actually control the machines. And, and someone who, someone else in a different position, like the Azure team, probably does not buy off-the-shelf servers because their business is probably providing service features on those servers. They probably customize them heavily or, or you know, pay a lot of attention to exactly the hardware config of those servers. So wherever you're adding your value as a business, you use something that's like a little bit too manual so that you have like that absolute maximum control over the thing that controls your ability to make money or not. Well, I, I, so I agree to that to an extent, but I think that when it comes to the cloud, uh, part of the problem is that the cloud is, rel- is so new that it's not proven. And I think that when mm-hmm. it comes to running your mission-critical business, you need, you need to be, have uh, a track record that you can rely on. You yeah. can look back and say, how reliable has this service been? How consistent has it been? And if it meets the, your quality threshold, then you're willing to buy into it. We're too young to have that kind of Yeah, but there's somebody, there's somebody for whom hosting of applications in the cloud is not their core business. I mean, maybe they're a concert promoter, and they have a website that lets you buy tickets once in a while. And yeah. for them to just outsource that whole thing is fine, because that's not, it's really the concert promotion is the most important thing of what they're doing. But uh, even if it was, I think that, you know, your, our businesses are all dependent on the internet connection that we're using. Right. Uh, and, and, and the phone the phone lines that we use to make phone calls. Uh, no, and, I don't know. It, My, if, if the internet connection to the Stack Exchange office goes down right now, it's not the end of the world. So we just use whatever provider is in the building and you know reasonably reliable. On the other hand, if the internet connection to Pier 1 goes down, then we're in trouble. So we're very careful about how that is provisioned. In other words, the things that are... The, the things that are um, how we make our money and how we make our profit mm-hmm. and how we, our core business, uh, we want an extra level of control. We want one level... You know, we, we no, don't want the abstraction I, I, that provides I, I, the perfect no, thing. My, my point was is that the internet connectivity yeah. that we've all built our businesses on has gotten good enough to the point where we can build our businesses on it. Yeah. That we're not creating private networks well, to that's connect actually to another, customers. Yeah. I mean, another aspect of that right. is people don't realize just how much they get out of the, these services that are doing about 10 levels more uh, than, than they would be able to do. So, um, I, um, how, you know, I'm trying, to think, I'm trying to think of an example. Just thinking about... Um, the level of like there are these companies that provide DNS services and companies that provide um, hosting. What are some other? I'm trying to think of some other examples where they, where they're just doing. Oh, I know what um, mail delivery, right? So email delivery, uh, transactional email, is the kind of thing that everybody was like, I don't get it. There's a control. I have a custom control called Send Mail, and I just use it to send mail. What's the big issue there? And then you discover that there are all these companies that are basically offering to offer something which is the command line of sending mail. But what they're really doing is they have a whole team of people that knows how to get things through spam filters and knows how to talk to the uh, knows how to talk to the postmasters at the large. Uh, email providers to make sure that your transactional email is not seen as spam by mistake and knows how to deliver, you know, 18 billion messages in one second and all that kind of stuff. So you actually um, can't really, you, you, you actually do get a lot of benefit from outsourcing it to somebody that specializes in that thing. Yeah. I mean, the same thing with security, too. Kind of random. Uh, this is one, yeah. of, one of the examples. To tie back to what we were talking about earlier is that we're going to spend a lot more money and energy on security than most people can, than you guys are going to probably. Right. Yes, totally. And I mean, that's totally another same. thing that I was very pleased with about Vista and Windows 7 was that Windows XP was developed in a completely different era. I mean, nobody had, you know, pervasive connectivity. There weren't, you know, 
people trying to attack you all the time. And, you know, Windows uh, Vista, despite all the problems it had, definitely had a much more hardened security model with UAC and stuff like that. And I think with Windows 7 and Windows 8, hopefully they'll go further in that direction because everybody's machine needs to be really, really secure out of the box. You know, that it's, that's the world we live in now. And the only way to fix that is really for the people who are shipping the most code to the most consumers to have hardened, you know, operating systems, basically. So, Mark, what, what was the reaction to your book in terms of, like, you know, what were you seeing? I mean, what, what was your goal? Was your goal merely to entertain or was it to educate or a little bit of both? Or Yeah, it was definitely both. I mean, that's why I put the technical stuff in there was so that it was uh, it, uh, somewhat educational. Somebody picking up the book could get an idea of what cybersecurity is about, what being a practitioner in the field of cybersecurity is, entails, and learn really – I. 100% believe that the scenario I paint in the book is a very realistic scenario. I'm actually surprised it hasn't happened. I mean, every week there's some headline that just blows my mind at how ridiculous it is, like the Predator drones being infected with malware that being announced a few weeks ago. <laughs> Stuff <laughs> yeah. that is stranger. Right. It's like if I, I mean, and actually what's crazy is that uh, in Trojan Horse, I got these <laughs> fake news bulletins in the in, 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 starting various sections in the book. One of the news bulletins for Trojan Horse, which I'd finished the draft of a few weeks, uh, a couple months ago, was predator drones getting infected with. Uh, so these horn. things are flying over Western Pakistan and stealing credit card numbers of the tribes in Waziristan, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> transmitting them back to Russia, where they're being used to buy access to pornography websites. It's shocking. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing, Joel. Technology. <laughs> we, are, we are almost we are almost out of time. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for being with us. Well, um, thanks for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Where where can people find you on the on the internet? Uh, Mark Rosinovich at Twitter. Mark Rosinovich at Facebook. And zerodaythebook.com. Cool. Uh, so we will post- um, we will have links to yeah. all those things in the show notes, which we put up at on blog that uh, comes out tomorrow at three p.m. Eastern. Before you go, Mark, again, thank you. I'm, I'm a huge fan, and, and I love all your work. Um, are you planning another book after this one, or what's the next Well, like thing? I said, I finished Trojan Horse, so that, that'll be out next fall. And then oh, awesome. We'll see what happens after that. Okay. I, I, well, I was waiting to see how kind of Zero Day did before I really pushed hard to finish Trojan Horse, which I'd been, I've been working on for a couple of years. And the response to Zero Day has been great. The publisher said they wanted another book, so, so here awesome. it comes. Excellent. So keep an eye out for that. Cool. We will buy some copies for the office. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm already scared, yeah, Joel. I'd be glad so actually to send you a signed copy or a few if you want to give them away too. Yeah. As part of. Oh yeah, please do. Yeah, That'd let's be do awesome. that. Let's have let's have some. Uh, um, Alex, producer and, Alex, will make it so. Oh, and you know right. we forgot to plug our own sites. We do have a security site, Mark. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> itsecurity.stackexchange.com. Yeah, uh, security. And we also have a site for writers as well. We always forget to plug our own stuff, Joel. It's just security.stackexchange.com, Joel. Oh, okay. It redirected. But it's, it, the quality has been pretty high there, actually. I'd be curious to think, see, Mark, what you think of uh, what we're doing there, if you have time. Right. Sure. Yeah, that's a pretty um, active site, actually. But yeah, writers turned out to be mostly about sort of fiction writing. Um, and and that, that surprised me a little. So, But right up the, the alley for anyone writing a book, for sure. That's That's your site. Cool. Well, you have been listening to Stack Exchange Podcast 25. Did I get the number right yes, over there? Yes, you did. I never, I never. Congratulations. Yay. 
Oh, also, I want Punyon to be our janitor. You were talking about we don't we don't outsource our janitoring because we. No, no, we, we do. We do. Have, that's the whole point is that we outsource our janitoring. Yeah. By janitoring, he means they come pick up the trash. Nothing else. That's really pretty much it, right? They we, might vacuum once a no, year. No, they don't vacuum. No. When do you punch no. do that? If the the yeah. Really? They don't vacuum? Really? See? How do, how do we live here? No wonder they don't allow dogs in the office. It would rapidly be covered with fur and snow. And All right. That's it. We'll see you next week. Oh, next week, uh, special guest, um, Chris Moot Pool, or Pool, or no, 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 Chris no. Pool, or Moot, um, from 4chan and Canvas, uh, who will talk to us. He has a website that is completely unmoderated, in which anybody can and does say just about anything that they want, and they post right. things, and almost everybody on that site is anonymous, including anonymous, the non-anonymous anonymous people. That'll be a good one. We've had um, some really... Yeah. So we, we'll have a lot to talk to uh, Chris about, and that'll be next week. Uh, see you next week. All right. Yeah, see Bye. you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.